Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. This this is a, a huge big deal for me. This is one of the great songwriters of our time and singers. Uh, it's Jay Farrar, Sunvolt. He's made his own records. He's a writer, also of uh, books. Uh, I just started, I didn't realize this, I just started reading the book you wrote about growing up and your dad, Jay, and what an amazing book it is. I'm only a third of the way into it, but it's awesome. Oh, and, well, I'm glad you like it. And, it's, a, it's a short read, so <laughs> you can take it anywhere. No, I'm reading it, on, I never read on my phone, but I've been reading it on my phone, and it seems set up for that great, easy. Um, but, man, um, you have a new album out called called Union, which is... Uh, just fantastic, and and uh, I'm not going to spend this whole time complimenting you. I'm going to get into questions, but I I do want to say that as I've been preparing for this and going back and listening to your records, it's amazing to me how many of your songs I know by heart and from all your records, and you've really been um, a big part of the soundtrack of my life for a long time, and I know I speak for a bunch of people, so I want to just say thanks for that. All right. Thank you. That feedback. Um, so here, here's what I want to ask, and we're not going to talk about Uncle Tupelo very much, I know. Um, but I, I do want to just tell you that the first time I saw you play was on the Lower East Side, like in 1990. Debbie Southwood, right. Debbie Southwood Smith took me to, oh, okay. to see you guys play, and I think I was 24. I'm, t- I'm 53 now. On Saturday, I turned 53. Yeah, and so we're about the same age. Yeah. So I just wanted to start by saying, like, because I've thought about this a lot in regards to my own c- career in a way, but what what does having such a long relationship with your audience mean to you? I mean, how do you process that when you look out from the stage and see guys our age who know all the words to the songs on Trace? You, you know what I mean? And know all the words to the, all the songs you wrote from before and who are wearing, you know, a Tupelo t-shirt from 1990. Like, how do you, how do you think about this relationship you've had with us for so long? It's, it's been kind of interesting, you know, cause you do notice it evolve and change over time. And now, yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll see like grandparents, maybe three generations sometimes <laughs> showing up, but bringing the grandkids and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really kind of interesting to, to see that happen. Do, do you feel do you feel connected like you we've all or or the audience has all been through a bunch of stuff with you do you do you ever wonder what it is that's tethered this community to you for so long or how do you think about it um i i don't know other than to point to perseverance i guess really you know i mean just having a creative element uh creative outlet has always been the catalyst for me you know so still still doing it and uh feel fortunate that i'm still able to do it and it's feel fortunate that people still show up (laughs) yes uh are you so does it does it not surprise you because you know you haven't you have this audience but does the way in which those songs resonate for people because right there's two parts of this there's the part that makes you keep doing it Mm-hmm. And then there's the part where the the work is received. Are those all part of one loop for you, or do you not do you cut off from from how it's received? Uh, more and more, I, I over the years I've, I've tried to take more of you know that 
what you mentioned into account. You know, so I've actually looked at uh, there there's ways of trying to figure out what kind of songs people want to hear. So I do take that into the into account, both talking to them personally and looking at which songs get played the most on radio and stuff like that. So a lot of that does get incorporated into uh, making upset lists when we, when we go out. So there's certain songs that we'll probably always play. And, uh, you know, fortunately, those are the same songs that I want to play. So it all works out in the end. Oh, you feel like that lines that lines up. Can you tell when you write one? Like when you wrote Methamphetamine, could you tell even though, you know, sort of a mid-period song for you, not a very mm-hmm. early song. Could you tell like, oh, this is this is real Sunvolt music. This this is what I talk about. This is what my audience cares about. Uh, maybe in a way, you know, some some people said they liked that song early on. I mean, but it's interesting that you bring that one up because it, that song I think represents sort of experimenting a bit for me. You know, from a songwriting um, perspective, I was trying to write from someone else's perspective, you know, like taking on a, a, a character narrative more and pretty much starting with that song, you know, is where I've been experimenting more and more writing from uh, someone else's perspective and, and songs on Union, like, uh, you know, The Symbol and Reality Winner. Of course. Those, those both represent that different kind of songwriting for me. Well, what's what has always struck me about methamphetamine um, which would be in my 10 favorite Jay for our songs is the empathy that, I mean, the empathy that you sing about on union as being, you know, almost gone from our country. It seems like you, it seems to me, it always seems to me when I listen to your records, like, and it was interesting reading your book too. It, it, it seems like, um, like you've conditioned yourself in life to 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 uh, maybe to to not let let feeling everything crush you, but like in a song like methamphetamine and in the songs on Union, I feel this this empathy that it seems like you you have, and I'm I I wonder if there are days it's just hard to get the fuck out of bed because of it. <laughs> being a tour, being a touring musician, that that quite a few, but. Uh... <laughs> Yeah. But uh, yeah, you know that that song, methamphetamine in particular, I, I was kind of drawing from real real life, you know, and, and it was more of a composite ultimately. But you know, maybe maybe that's when when things start to to gel within a song is, is when, when you're drawing from real real experiences. And, and how do you um, do you feel like you're giving voice when you do that kind of thing? To, because I know you know there's the Woody Guthrie tradition, the Pete Seeger tradition, the Lead Belly tradition, um, varying degrees of sort of like the personal gets into their music. But there was this sense of of giving voice not just to the disenfranchised, but those who can't find the words themselves. And and that does seem at play on on this record and on many of your records, even going back to the Tupelo records. You're singing about a world that you're singing about struggle. And, and it's not always your struggle. And I'm, I'm wondering if you're, if that's part of what you see as your duty in a way. Um, perhaps, perhaps it is, you know, I mean, I guess with this record more than some of the others, you know, I was sort of thinking about it, the writing in terms of, uh, 
you know, being the tradition aspect of the tradition of the bard, so to speak, you know, where you're just writing about things you're seeing around you. And uh, with this recording, <clears throat> excuse me, in particular with this recording, uh, you know, I was just witnessing the turmoil happening and pulling a lot of these songs, you know, straight out of the headlines, like a song like the 99, which was referencing the Dakota Pipeline protest and the uh, Ferguson protest and Occupy protest. And a song like The Symbol, you know, which was uh, coming out of some of the uh, DACA news and the building the wall and all that. And and as you're writing those songs, how, how do you manage to not, because you don't just, I mean, this is a question about technique, I guess, and process. Because, you know, it's really hard to write protest songs now, right? When when mm-hmm. when Dillian, Dylan was writing about Hattie Carroll and William Zanzinger, the idea of indicting that upper-class figure for what they were doing and singing on behalf of Hattie, um, it was new enough in pop music that uh, the poetry of it and the sort of, the sense of... Um, of not just, it's funny, broadside, which is of not just giving like a broadside attack um, mm-hmm. didn't matter. Nuance. I find that your writing on this record is really nuanced as though you're trying to really get inside of this shit. And, and it seems to me hard enough to do that for people who have a lot of words to write about it. And you're trying to do this with some sense of economy. I mean, how uh, rigorously do you approach this shit? <laughs> uh, well, again, I, I was just kind of, you know, Calling, calling things as I saw them, a lot of it coming from headlines. But uh, I think to, to what you were saying, someone pointed out to me that they, they thought they saw more of a Midwestern sensibility in some of this writing where maybe that's true, you know, where you, I do try to see all sides and, uh, you know, going to the title of the record, Union, and the song, it's, it's more about, you know, trying to make sense of the cultural divide that's going on now. You know, I was too young to experience the 1960s and yeah. just vaguely remember the Vietnam War era. So, you know, this this whole red versus blue cultural divide is, is uh, disconcerting, to say the least, and <laughs> just trying to make sense of it. And the only thing I can do is, is write about it. Well, yeah, I mean, that line you keep repeating, you know, you said national service, bring the country together, um, is... On its face, there's something sort of hopeful about it, but, you know, you sing it mournfully as though the possibility of that is kind of past. And I'm wondering what you think, right? I mean, you know that the way you sing it in the melody um, leads us to almost think that was a quaint idea and that it's it's going to be impossible to get people to uh, retrench. Yeah. So how, yeah, I, mean, I, don't think, I don't think we're... Yeah, on the point of no return yet, but uh, but yeah, just the song. Hopefully, it adds to the discussion, you know, because a lot of the rhetoric that I've seen, you know, at least knowing a little bit about Civil War history, a lot of it reminds me of a lot of the rhetoric being thrown around back then, before the Civil War. So, you know, it's definitely something to be aware of. I mean, as you tour around the country, do you see the split that much in your audience? Do you do you look out there? I remember once I was at a U two show, and he was 
but they played Bullet the, the right on the tour of that album. They played Bullet the Blue Sky, and all these people were cheering for you too. And they started playing that song, and people were, started giving them the curse finger, like "fuck you." And then they went back to cheering for Pride in the name of love, you know? And, right? Uh, it was crazy yeah. to me. Yeah. So it you, hasn't gotten like that yet, you know. And definitely looking at things historically, you know, I mean, it, protest content would used to be so much more commonplace. You know, you mentioned. Bob Dylan and, you know, Neil Young with Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young had that song Ohio and Ten Soldiers and Nixon's Comet and even Leonard Skinner, you know, had that line in, in Sweet Home, Alabama. Uh, in Birmingham, they love the governor, blue, 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 which course, is a yes. reference, reference to George Wallace. So, I mean, yeah, uh, and even in the 80s, right? R.E.M. did it all the time. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I wish it, this the kind of topical content or protest music was more prevalent but uh you know to me it's it's really it doesn't seem like anything out of, out of the ordinary right it just seems to you the way you're processing the world but as an artist do you think about i mean i read where you said in your press pack and some in- interviews you know you you put a song like devil may care on there because you don't want the whole thing to just feel like a harangue and it doesn't feel like that at all and, and it's not like devil may care is also just some joyous romp um but uh, do you, as an artist, think about the juxtaposition of these words to, with melody and song, to make them somehow palatable or to um, uh, uh, make them sort of land in a, in a bittersweet way so that one goes away, not just riled up to protest, but goes away right. thinking about it? Is that conscious in your part or just how the songs come out? Well, this time around, it, it was conscious, you know, because I started out wanting to make more of a you know, complete focused protest type record. And then about midway through the writing, I realized that, you know, that's, that's really not what some of it should be all about. You know, so I went back and kind of tried to find inspiration in what I, I saw to be the other essential part, you know, which is just being inspired by the regular rock ethos, you know, bands like the stones and replacements and the who and, and stuff like that. So, uh, and obviously there's a lot of, uh, birds and Tom Petty on this record as well. Getting back to that inspirational sound of the 12 string guitar. Sure. That's all over it. Yes. But also I've been listening to a lot of Mississippi Sheiks and Robert Johnson lately, like it's Mm. all Mississippi Sheiks over and over again. And, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me because you listen to that stuff and they don't really sing about the societal struggle but you feel it sort of soaking, it, mm-hmm. it soaks their music, if, if you know what I mean. Um, and that, yeah. to me, is like the other side of the folk music was the folk, the blues piece that sort of, um, I guess, Dylan fused, and I mean, even Merle Haggard fused in a certain way. But um, they don't talk much about it in the lyrics, and it seems to me like you swing back and forth in that tradition. Like... I do hear the all the modern elements in your music, Jay, but I've also always heard Robert Johnson and the Mississippi Sheiks and Lead Belly, and I I've always heard an affinity or a connection to the pain to the kind of pain that the the personal thing that the blues singers, um, those folk blues singers, not really the mm-hmm. electric blues so much, but those singers sang about. And does, does that resonate for you? Does that make sense to you at all? Um, it does, you know, I think, uh, you're right in terms of, uh, you can sort of hear, uh, societal, uh, 
issues or inequality coming out in some of that music, you know, which I think Blind Willie McTell, I listened to a lot of over the last couple of years, and I yeah. could kind of hear some some uh, some subtle protest in some of his music. But, um, yeah, you know, it's essentially just uh, I have been always drawn to the folk blues in particular and, you know, the, the previous Sunbolt recording notes of blue, uh, Mississippi Fred McDowell in particular. And, you know, so I guess there's that music does resonate and it's, it always occupies kind of a mysterious space for me that I'm always studying and, uh, you know, trying to figure out tunings from those guys and, and what made them tick. Me too. They're en- the endless mis- don't just not to get off on it, but I just want to talk about it for a second because nobody knows those records. I mean, people know yeah. that Robert Johnson sort of received in mm-hmm. a way, or they know they're supposed to listen to the record and um, with some kind of reverence, but there aren't that many people who actually just like, listen to those records for uh what do you think it is because i do think it ties into this right there's this feeling in sunvolt music in j Farrar music and as you know i'm a publicly uh in the jeff tweedy j Farrar conversation i'm a public i'm a public j Farrar person and uh there is sort of a connection to me in the silences in 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 your music in in between the lines in between what's 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 sung something yeah. in your voice that connects to that mysterious thing that happened around those like Mississippi Sheik's records. And, right. And, I mean, the, the essence of the blues is you're singing to, to make life better. Right. So, I mean, I guess that's just one thing I learned from listening to the blues and that applied that to, uh, to, to what we're doing with Sunvolt. It's, uh, that inspirational aspect of it. The idea of, exercising the pain sure. and trying to find some sense of community and pleasure and like release. Yeah. I can stand by that. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's a fascinating thing, right? Because there's this ineffable quality to music that we love that is hard to explain, but it's important to dive into, I think, because yeah. there's something about what happens in the first few notes of a Sunvolt record or any record you've been involved with that that connects me to this very uh, deep and primal sadness. And it's, it's just what happens when you open your mouth to sing, but more than that, it's what happens when you start playing, Jay. And um, it's one of the reasons I was really wanted to read the book because and and the and the book I, I the the tone with which you write is more nostalgic and more sort of like searching in in mm-hmm. the book there is a there is a sadness though um and it's for me it's like a connected sadness to the sadness that's in the world that it it feels like you're grappling with when you write songs. And is that still the case? Does it feel still feel the same to you when you're writing as it did 20 years ago? It does. Yeah, I mean there's there's always an aspect of just trying to make sense of things and that that hasn't changed, I don't think. Um you know, certainly when you're touching on past life experiences of of growing up, you're you're definitely trying to make sense of things. Yes. <laughs> From, um so, you know, some of that is is touched upon in in the book, and uh, but I think more more than anything, the book was just I just felt compelled to do it, you know, and uh, maybe I'll 
get to writing some more at some point. You should. But, uh, you should just focused man. on focused on the band right now. Oh, of course. When you're writing these songs, are you? And I'm sure you must get letters from people. Does the fact that you putting your own sadness out there makes other fe- people feel connected and feel because the thing about yeah. Sunvolt fans, right, is they really feel like you you saved their life in some way. And and how does that hit you? Do you feel it? Do you feel that as an obligation or a privilege? Um, it's it's both. Yes. Um, you know there is that that give and take dynamic that's that's definitely there you know we just did a couple warm-up shows in columbia missouri uh, which is a college town about two hours outside of st louis and i was struck by how many people had, had flown in for that gig you know there were people from ireland german bikers biking around the country that had stopped by and the guys that flew in from vancouver so you know that that really kind of struck me, yeah, and I think that gets to what you're uh, what you're talking about. It does. There's a your willingness to be so vulnerable in the recordings and let us hear the, the straw your struggle. I think makes I don't know it 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 has the effect of it has a healing effect. I think, and I. I don't know how much you intend that to be the case, or if it's just like this is what I feel, so I have to write it, and then that just sort of happens. Well, it's all a continuum, I guess. You know, that's certainly what I get from listening to music. So, just just trying to pass it on. Hey, we are going to be talking about ancestry here. You know, uh, it's perfect timing for this because this week, my nephew Jacob, uh, we were in a big family group chat, and. He started asking questions of my dad about our family's uh, origins. And are they from this part of Europe, that part of Europe, what happened and why? And people got into anecdotes. And uh, man, the, the simplest thing would just be using the Ancestry DNA test because it has billions of historical family records. And this is what I put in the text. And I was like, hey, listen to the podcast. And I'm going to be talking about ancestry. I mean, ancestry DNA gives you so much more than just the places too. It, it connects you to the places in the world where your story started and it uses precise geographical detail and clear cut historical insights. You can even trace your ancestors' journeys over time, following how and why your family moved from place to place. You can uh, amplify your results if you want. You can start a free trial on ancestry and build a tree so your ancestors become more than just a name. Look, when, when, when you got a place that has combined the DNA results with over 100 million family trees and billions of records, you're going to just get more insight. And uh, so we're going to do it. I'm going to get uh, Jacob and uh, the rest of us all um, to uh, take the Ancestry DNA test so that we can learn much more than just sort of like the anecdotes that have been passed down over time. So go to Ancestry.com slash moment today for 20% off your Ancestry DNA kit. That's Ancestry.com slash moment for 20% off your Ancestry DNA kit. Ancestry.com slash moment. For a limited time, now through June 13th, go to Ancestry.com slash moment to get your Ancestry DNA kit for 69 bucks. That's Ancestry.com slash moment for 69 bucks. Ancestry.com. One thing that people don't talk about as much when they talk to you, because it's very easy to talk about songs, it's hard to talk about singing. And um, 
But I know that the first thing I noticed uh, on the first Tupelo record was how great your voice is and how great a singer you are. And that it's got a very particular, I think, this brave thing of you're, you don't seem like you're trying to hide your real self. It seems like you're trying to present it. And I'm wondering, when did you figure out you were a good singer? And did you start singing for people right away? And like, when did you figure out, oh, this, I, I can, I can actually, it's not just that I can write them, but, but I, I can, I love to sing. And I wanted to ask you, do you love singing? Does it, does it feel no. like the closest you get to religiousness when you're singing? What, what you know, what happens um, to you when you do that thing? Yeah. I mean, it's just as a, as a daily routine especially when out on tour it's it's almost definitely like a meditation type aspect to it you know i mean it's it's both cleansing and uh just there's just a lot to it you know i guess it is kind of spiritual in a way um and that's why i hope to be able to continue doing it uh, for as long as i can but as far as when i no, I didn't know I could sing until I was probably, you know, I'd probably been in a band for maybe six years or so, and then just sort of started doing it, you know. And I, I guess didn't really think that, oh, well, I'm a, I'm a singer, you know. Just, just started doing it. What do you mean you were in a band for six years before you started singing? I have to understand uh, that. What were you doing in the, what were you doing in the band before that? Just playing guitar. Uh, my brother was a singer. Uh, band was called the plebes at that point right maybe not six years maybe but you know there were maybe two two bands before i really started two bands worth of you just being a guitar player and did you yeah were you were you writing then did you start like do you remember when you f- wrote your first song that was like oh this feels like i just wrote a song um uh, yeah it was probably closer to being 20 by that point you know where you know you have to kind of transition from you know we had a great time being playing covers and you know that familiarity aspect that people get from hearing songs that they know but at a certain point you realize you have to transition and evolve and and then you just start start doing it you know trial and error some songs don't work and then you basically learn along the way how you know which songs do work and a lot of that is based on on audience feedback and all that so you know uh that's that's the the craft element of of being in a band. You learn and you apply it. Yes, for sure. And you start you started writing them. Were you decent at it right away? Did you did you, like what were you listening to to compare then at twenty at nineteen? Like what, if if at twenty nineteen I would have gotten in your car and we were taking a long road trip. Like if you got in my car when I was twenty. You would have heard Nebraska over and over again. You would have heard uh, a bunch of Bob Dylan. You would have heard uh, REM. Like, what mm-hmm. if I got into? And then you know, from that stuff, older, much older music, but that they were into. And you would have heard the replacements for sure. Like a lot of the replacements. But yeah. Like if I got in your car at, at twenty and we were going on a road well, I was, trip. When I was in high school, I had a eight, a car with an eight track player. So yeah. luckily, uh, with that eight track player came three eight track tapes and one was sticky fingers by the stone yeah. the other one was road to ruin by the ramones and the other one was are you experienced by jimmy Hendrix. Huh, so not bad <laughs> it was kind pretty of, good it was kind of a yeah it was an endless loop of all that so you know some of that must have played a part into 
where I wound up down the road. Uh, but yeah, at 19, I was probably listening to more uh, like Oscar Du, yes. the replacements, and uh, still, you know, a healthy dose of Bob Dylan, I think. Well, okay, so I've written a hooks. So I, I know Tupelo questions suck, so I'm not going to ask many, just like one or two, but I, I just want to get to it this way. Like, so you mentioned Husker Du, and I had written this down, which is, uh, do you think, a way to understand why people bring it up or care about it is, like, I know I wish I could see the Velvet Underground or the Pixies or Husker Du one more time. So does that part of it make any sense to you? Like, do you understand the romance of it in that way at all? Yeah, I could... I can understand, you know, it's certainly, I think more people found out about Uncle Tupelo after, after the band had ended. So, uh, you know, but certainly, you know, the, there was a building audience as well. So then when it stopped, it's just, it's, there's a mystique there. Sure. Well, yeah. Like the thing about Grant and uh, Grant and Bob, right. Is like, if from the outside, I'm sure you were like, I would love Grant and Bob to play together once more. I think that's, it's not so much about wanting to go back or put you guys in a place that you can't be in. It's about probably what we all felt then, in a way, right? The emotional connection. Yeah. To recreate it or something like that. Yeah, there's just this emotional thing that that if, if I could walk into a club and see Bob and Grant play together, it would... You know, it it would probably affect me in some way. I mean, I would probably like, you know, or Bill Barry playing with R.E.M., right? It would probably, right. it would just probably affect me. And, and that I think that's why people, I've been giving a lot of thought to why, because, right, you guys are both out there making great music. And even though I'm a Ferrar guy, uh, Jeff makes, I'm not going to say like Jeff doesn't make really good music, but there's just a, uh, there's an emotional connection. The fact that I was one of 32 people in a club watching you play mm-hmm. And I, right, because I'm sure you remember those New York gigs when you were in 1990, yeah. nobody was there. I was just lucky that Debbie took me to see, it was like, you got to see. Was that uh, yeah. CBGB's or would have been like, um, no. remember the club? No, it wasn't CB's. Debbie and I have been trying to think about it. Um, it was on the Lower East Side, like on First Avenue around 11th or 12th Street. And it was, uh, there was barely a stage. You guys were like. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you, I remember that. You guys were like one foot above me. And there yeah. were like 30 of us in the room. and It was almost like there were some tables set out to extend the stage or something because there yes. wasn't much of a stage. So Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and, and My I, recollection is that, yeah, it was kind of more of a <laughs> restaurant or something. Something almost. weird, right? And yeah. I remember her saying to me, um, you got to come see these guys play. And, and I hadn't heard the record before that. And then saw the show and then that was it. You know, I was a fan for, I mean, that just locked me in forever. Um, it was an incredible night and she was amazing, Debbie, just her ability to find yeah. stuff and, and know it, um, is incredible. And I'll tell her hi for you. Uh, yeah, please do. But has the, so the Tupelo aside, did, did, did you have the sense that you were sort of codifying a new American music? Like that you were, did you know that, you were creating a new form of an old music. Like, it's funny because, like, Dylan gets um, both credit and he got castigated in his time for taking these elements that had existed before him and then fusing them. But you did do that also. I mean, you created a musical movement, right? Jason Isbell's not winning Americana awards if you guys don't invent Americana music. And has it been a, is that a burden for you? Is it something you have pride in or is it something that you, you don't relate to at all? Um, again, you know, I felt like we, we 
on the one hand, we did feel like we were trying to create something new, you know, and put our individualistic stamp on it. But on the other hand, it, it felt like we were part of something larger, you know, which was bands like the Birds, who really kind of synthesized a lot of different elements, you know, and it was all kind of there as a template for us to kind of pick up on. I mean, the, the one element that that bands like that from the '60s didn't really have was was soaking up, uh, you know, punk rock music and, and right. a similar protest ethos to some of the, the folk music that had come before. So, it, you know, it's just by the very nature of what we were listening to, it did it didn't it did ensure that it was going to be kind of unique and individualistic. So, you know, there's that. But uh, for the most part, uh, it felt like, you know, we were just trying to be like the birds. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's like what Harold, you know, you know, Harold Bloom, the literary guy who has that theory, uh, anxiety of influence, which is, you try to imitate the great artists. Try hard to imitate something, but but in fact they can't really imitate it, and they do yeah. like such a bad job of imitating it by um, by putting so much of themselves in that that they create something new out of that. Which is what I do think mm-hmm. you you it feels to me like like what you did. And I look at a band like Drive By Truckers. I mean, I love Isbel. For me, Isbel's the great songwriter of our moment. But like, I look at the Truckers. And they did to Southern Rock, right? What you guys did to Punk, but they came after you. And like, I don't see, I, I wonder if wearing the No Depression mantle has been a burden for you or not, because I do. If I look at it, I I do see in the same way the Velvet Underground were that for Punk Rock. I do see you guys, you as as being the formative act that led to all these different tributaries, like. The river from which all this stuff is disparate as the truckers and the hold steady. Like it feels like it all came out of what you started. Yeah, yeah. You know, again, I felt like we were just part of something larger. You know, because so much of the stuff coming out of uh, California, like X and the Knitters, and yeah. you know, Alejandro. Oh, uh, Alejandro, you know, everyone, so great. Everyone was, yes, yes. Everyone was at least a lot of the stuff that we were listening to was kind of incorporating country elements in it anyway so x you mean x in particular when dave alvin joined though right or do you think x even with john and xine no i would agree that the, the knitter yeah more of the dave alvin influence probably it's so interesting right the blasters uh, yes uh, about seven years ago i started listening to the blasters again and i didn't realize at the time how those records just sound brand new today. How like they really yeah. did something, yeah. right? That was nobody I mean sure. and were they a little bit before they were like ten years before you, I guess. Five years before you. Um I I remember going to see them in high school actually that was right. when, when uh, the replacements opened up for them. Wow, uh, you yeah. saw the replacements open up for the blasters? Oh no, not the blasters, sorry, X. Oh they X with X. Dave X with Dave Alvin, you're saying. Uh no. Or John pre, Doe. Pre, Pre-Dave Alvin. That still must have been... Billy, Billy Zoom. Right. That still must have been unbelievable to see yeah, that. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, I guess going back to those quintessential rock moments that would have been for both bands, but the replacements in particular, the first note or the first song in Westerberg crashes into the mic and falls oh. off the stage. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you saw one of and, those replacement shows? Yeah, yeah. but, it, you know... it. In retrospect, it seemed more like it was just from, I mean, maybe he was out of it, but it seemed like it was more out of passion than 
them being messed up, you know, because they, they played a tight show. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that was that was my takeaway from it. At the I, time. I mean, my senior year of high school, I had a gigantic. Uh, I sort of graffitied my stupidly graffitied my room, but like one wall had a gigantic like thing of the replacements logo that we made, and yeah, <clears throat> that band meant the world to me at a certain time. But I never saw a great show. Yeah, I, I love the replacements. I just never saw a great. I, I just never saw a great show. I, 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 I was, uh, yeah, I know, I know what you're, know what you're saying. I, I was lucky enough to see that one, which was good. And then I think I saw another one when things were starting to kind of fall apart. With uh, yes. and then uh, Uncle Duplo opened a few shows, which were all really, really good. You know, and they had Slim. I was just the four guys were in the band. The four guys were in the band when you saw it, like the original band. Uh, no, there was a guitar player, Slim Dunlop, that replaced, uh, at least for the when Uncle Tubelo was opening for right. replacements. It was the second version of, of the replacements. It's still pretty amazing that you got yeah. to that you got to do that. Did you did you work up the courage to talk to Paul at all? Um, we talked just very very briefly. Okay. I think the extent of his complete. <laughs> <laughs> comments, ah, the extent of his complete comments to me were ah vertebrates which was a reference to um the fact that we had been playing a vertebrate song which was a kind of an obscure garage band from champaign illinois i think that's awesome so, so he caught that and that's what he said to you yeah that's pretty good you should so make, you, should you know make... I, I took it as a positive so yeah of course it's a positive <laughs> he was giving you a little tip of the hat that's i think yeah. that's that's pretty great actually Hey, let's talk about Zip Recruiter. Here's the thing. Hiring is challenging. There's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart, a place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place? ZipRecruiter.com slash moment. Look, ZipRecruiter sends your jobs over 100 of the world's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective, 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com moment. That's ZipRecruiter.com moment. ZipRecruiter.com moment. ZipRecruiter. The smartest way to hire. What um, what have you when you were writing Union? What did you find yourself? Because um, I know obviously you were watching and reading the news a lot, and mm -hmm. um, but what did you find yourself listening to over the last couple of years? Like what before you even maybe knew you were going to write the, a record like this? What did you find yourself drawn to? Like for instance, I started listening to Lou Reed's New York album and Nebraska again a lot as Trump took over America. I somehow was drawn to the stories on those records. What, what did you find yourself drawn to? Um, I, you know, ironically, I, I've just been listening to a lot of Tom Petty, you know, since his, his, his yeah. death and he's not really known for, uh, being a protest music writer. Although <clears throat> there was sort of a confluence period where he, I think the song jam and me, he wrote with, uh, uh, Bob Dylan, I believe, and uh, we've been playing that one live. And that's that's awesome. Kind of up updated some of the lyrics because some of the lyrics were a bit 
on a date. So I hope I hope that's not sacrilege or anything, but uh, we're having having. I'm, uh, I'm sure he would have appreciated it. But yeah, there's you know that some of that that twelve string sound and getting back to it is, is is something that's prevalent on this recording. But uh, as far as like going back and listening to anybody for inspiration in particular, you know, I, I see where you're coming from in Lou Reed, New York. Sure. I think maybe I'll go there now. After <laughs> yeah. it, no, it's really worth listening to, man. Sure. I mean, you, you singing Dirty Boulevard would be freaking incredible. No, you just get the sense, you know, Halloween Parade and Last Great American Well and all those songs are just, mm-hmm. you're like, fuck, this guy could have written the song. and No, uh, you know, right now. Um, yeah, sure. So it's kind of amazing um, when you think about it. I have a few more questions and then I'll sure. I'll let you go. Um, when can you talk about the the way in in which uh, you start songs? How you're how you're critical? So this is something a lot of people who who listen to this podcast or people who you know they they want to do this kind of work and the sort of ghost of perfectionism fucks them up. So can and you are clearly a perfectionist, right? You're not somebody who just churns out records. You're somebody who really cares about oh, I, that, every... I thought you were... What? Yeah, go ahead. No, what'd you think I was going to go? I know you're clearly somebody <laughs> who cares about every note of music on your records and every mix and every mic you use. It's obvious when one listens to your records, the level of craft uh, at play. But that kind of perfectionism can stop us sometimes from doing the yeah. work. And so I wonder how you wrestle with it. Like, how do you... You know, Jim Carroll talked about how he would talk to the monkey on his back about his addiction. So I'm wondering, how do you... He's like, you know, but Kurt, didn't you ever realize you could talk to the monkey? So, like, how do you wrestle with the muse and how do you wrestle with the the, the perfectionist in you to just to get stuff done? Well, that's... I mean, you touched on the main the main catalyst is, is just getting... That's it, trying to get stuff done, you know. And, and beyond that, it's trying to find the right balance of... Uh, perfectionism versus, um, you know, more of a visceral, uh, emotion that comes through or something like that. So, you know, even with this recording union, um, we did some, some songs like Devil May Care and Broadsides were pretty much live. Like, you know, it's more of a a live oriented recording situation. Whereas some of the other songs where I was doing, more of a mobile recording in uh, at the Mother Jones Museum and the Woody Guthrie Center, you know, and the, the reason I decided to record at those places was to kind of highlight, you know, their contributions to where we are today and to hopefully find inspiration along the way. But in the cases of songs like uh, The 99 and uh, I guess a song like Rebel Girl and The Symbol, those were recorded at Woody Guthrie Center and Mother Jones, and it was primarily just me and the, you know, this guy Jacob Dettering doing the mobile recording, who did a great job of putting together yeah, the record. Sounds incredible. Recording rig to take out there and do it. So some of the songs were kind of more layered and built upon, and other songs were more live. Everybody in the studio at the same time. So again, there was sort of a balance of the recording approach, and there was also kind of a balance of topical songwriting. But what about topical songwriting? What about when you're when you're writing? Are you do you are you one of those people who writes ten songs and records ten songs? Do you write twenty? Do you abandon songs? Like process wise, how do you know when you're onto something? How do you 
how do you know when you should finish one? How does that work for you as an artist? Um, it kind of depends on what else is going on in your life, I guess, and how much time you have to <laughs> yes. get things done. But uh, with this recording, I think there were maybe, well, maybe only one song that didn't make it. But uh, yeah, usually there's at least the way that it usually works out on solo recordings and solo records for me is that there's only, you know, maybe one or two that don't make it. So once you set out to write a song, that's it. You're, you're in it until you make it good enough where you can put it on the record. You're going to, you're going to, yeah. And, and does it usually take you like a week to write a song or a day till you think it's finished? Um, the the best songs are written in a, in a day or a few minutes. And, uh, I would say it's, it's pretty commonplace to, to work on a song within a week probably you know going back and revising a few things over the course of a week and saying okay that's good move on but there's always some final tweaks that get made while you're recording as well just you know things you don't foresee of like them just fitting in lyrics the meter of the song of uh, course yes meter sure does it does it build does it build up for you and then you write because like the idea, I love that idea that you write a song in a couple hours, and that's like one of the great songs that you've written. I, I completely relate to that in terms of scene writing. You know, uh, the ones where I just am, I'm sort of in a daze and I I look up and I've written a thing and it's I have yeah. no idea how that fucking happened is the best feeling, right? Yeah. But but it, for me anyway, that doesn't happen all the time. Like you know, that's the exception. Th- uh, do, do you put yourself on a deadline like, hey, I got to start writing or I want to write this, or are you someone who's struck by a feeling? a thought, and then you just go, fuck, give me my guitar. How does it work for you? Um, both. You know, it's usually when I'm in a, in a period of like, hey, I have some time to write, you know, you you get those sort of spontaneous bursts to, to go about it. But ultimately, I've learned over the years that it really does take a lot of uh, persistence as well to really pull it all together, you know, so you have to kind of even if, you know, you have to kind of clock in and do it, even if nothing comes out of it that day, you know, over time, it, it really benefits the whole if, if you are just putting in time, as well as the spontaneous kind. You have to kind of sit down and, and uh, sweat it, put some sweat to it as well. Fuck, you really do, man. It's true. There's like no, there's no way around the persistence. Are you a pretty good judge of when you're on to something? Or you play stuff for somebody? How does that work for you? Um, I usually try to uh, come up with a collection of ten songs, and you know, usually by the time get everyone together, yeah. you know, I'll give them a demo of, of those ten songs, and then usually I'm kind of finishing up the last three or four by the time we're in the studio, and you know, things can kind of be sometimes things evolve in the studio, so it. It's really just kind of a, a moving, a movable process that that uh, that seems to follow the same uh, sure. approach every time. You you've written a lot about hopeless situations, and but on on most of your records, there's there's been some light, some possibility of salvation. I mean, even a song like "Sinking Down," by the mere fact of saying it, it there's something in it. I guess in the groove of that song. As you know, that song hit me real hard. We used it to open and close an episode of the show last billions yeah. last season. On this record, it th- this possibility of salvation is harder to hear overtly. 
like even in Devil May Care, because in the same way with the the old blues musicians we were talking about, that mm-hmm. weird dark magic that existed. Can you know in even in the silences on this record, it's harder to find the hope. And I'm 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 wondering, can you do you do you feel hopeless, or do you feel that there's a sense of hope in community building? I mean, and I don't want to lead you. I I want to know what you really think, Jay. Well, I guess I would respond by saying a song like The Reason, you know, someone else that was interviewing me said they felt that song was more like a prayer or something. Sure. That, that kind of struck me to think about it a different way. So, you know, I do see that song sort of evoking a more positive aspect than some of the others. You know, the flip side of that is uh, other folks have told me that they feel like they appreciated that the, a lot of the songs that were dealing with topical, topical content were not, you know, put forth as angry songs, that there was kind of more of just a resignation. Well, a sadness. I mean, you know, yes, I agree. You're so, sad. It so, strikes one so again, as it's, sadder. It's just, it's just kind of that balance, I guess, is, 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 is there in a lot of different aspects on this record. But I guess what I'm asking, because as you know, like you're someone whose music I've listened to for 30 years, uh, are you are you able to find any crevices or corners of hope right now, personally? Like, when you look at the yeah. world and the place we're in, can you find mm-hmm. does it does it feel like there's any sense of possibility or wonder showing up? Yeah, well, there is. You know, I have my wife to thank for this one. She sent me a quote from a a writer. The name Bertolt Brecht. Yes, yes. His name and uh, uh, his quote was, "During times of darkness, will there be singing?" And yes, there will be singing about the darkness. So, you know that that, that kind of applies here. I think. Well, yeah, you just definitely gave us the like little episode description for this episode, which is Jay Farrar <laughs> on singing about the darkness, um, which is and not not the band, the darkness, singing about the darkness. Um, hey, what uh, what books do you give? Find yourself giving to people when people, you know, if you're, wh- I always like to know this. Like, uh, I tend to give certain books by Murakami to people. Do you? Do, are there a couple books you are, always recommend when someone says like, "Hey, what's something I, I need to read?" Uh, I guess it depends on the, the person. But yeah, like, uh, it could be uh, anything from Faulkner. As I lay dying, I always kind of compare books to that to see if they sure very few hold up to that. Yeah, very few hold up to that. Yes. <laughs> but I, I guess the more contemporary books I've come across, I like this one called "Killers of the Flower Moon" about the beginning of the FBI investigating. Uh, there was a Osage Indian tribe in Oklahoma that you know they, they discovered a, a huge deposits of oil underneath, and they became incredibly wealthy, and then. And then the the grifters came in, and it's really kind of diabolical. But it also touches on you know the formations of the FBI back in the I guess it was back in the 30s. But uh, you know that's that's still interesting stuff in a in a contemporary way as well. Just knowing about the FBI. Wow. All right, I got to check that out. Um, I, yep. I never I don't know that book at all. I've never heard of it. I'm gonna I'm gonna read it. Are you uh, Killers of the Flower Moon? Killers of the Flower Moon. I'm definitely gonna get that book. Um, lastly, uh, 
have you started writing again? Do you write on tour? And um, where are you? Where is this tour taking you? Uh, we are starting out in the Midwest, um, heading north, and then we're going to, heading to the Northeast, and then back, and then it's kind of broken up into three different tours. Essentially, all starting out of the Midwest, but we'll be on the West Coast in in the fall. And where are you? Are you based out of New York? Yeah, New York. Uh, when are you coming okay. through? Uh, probably about ten days or so, I would imagine. Oh, really? Oh, please send me a message. It's like, yeah, text yeah. text me so I can come out. I gotta come. Uh, sure. That's awesome. Well, hey, Jay Farrar, listen, man, thanks for making this record. Um, it's a great one. Thanks for really and truly. Um, thank you for the music that you've made, your commitment to making bullshit free music for a, a really long time. Uh, again, thank you. Again, uh, it was amazing to me when I went back and started listening to these records again, just how much they've accompanied me on how many drives and how many walks and how many sort of lonely rooms while I was trying to write. Um, your voice has been a comfort for a long time, dude. So thanks. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. And thanks for taking the time with this. Um, pe- yeah, thanks people, for your time. Of course, people can find you. Are you are you on Twitter? Do you do, can people find you there? Uh, I, I recently started doing a few Instagram posts, but um, <clears throat> I'm a luddite, so I couldn't even tell you what it's called. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> Good. <laughs> find Jay somewhere find Jay somewhere on Instagram posting a couple things that's great and uh, I'm not a Luddite you can find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter uh, or on Instagram if if you want Jay Farrar thank you and um, man I'll see you when you play New York All right, thanks take care man